Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast for this episode we are going to Vienna to be joined by Juan Guerra, the founder of Be Seen. Juan, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'm delighted to have you. Typical fashion of the, of the podcast, as, as we're entering season two, uh, episode 100 will have aired by now. And I said after episode 100, we'll uh, launch season two. So you're the first guest of season two. So welcome. Um, I'd I, I, I'd like to start for the first five or six minutes getting to know you, a little bit more about you. And then the main part of the conversation today is going to be around uh, the audiences, entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs, business owners. So scaling your business using live events and potentially touching on a bit of storytelling, but that being the meat of the conversation. So why don't we start with learning a little bit more about you. You were born and raised in Venezuela um yeah what was your childhood like have you got any fond memories from your time in venezuela because i know you're based in vienna now which we'll get to yeah no definitely uh being born in venezuela was quite a quite an experience i went to private school all boys school catholic school uh middle class family um but i i would say that it was very sheltered uh i was very obviously very i'm very grateful of the opportunities that i've had given the situation that i was born into um obviously that's not the case for many people in my country and so definitely super aware of that and um yeah i mean i think that growing up there allowed me to have this this relaxed mindset culture of like okay we'll figure it out when things happen and you know one thing that I think is characteristic of Venezuelans, especially with my background, is that we're very entrepreneurial. And many times we hear, and I, I meet Venezuelans abroad, like they're trying to start a business, they're trying to figure out a way to make a living. Um, the traditional career path is not something that we are truly crazy about because we see the opportunities of having our own business and, and, and actually shaping our own well, destiny per se. Um, and so I think that that entrepreneurial mindset, given the situations of the country, not providing you with all the stuff that you need, um, it's something that I took with me, um, whatever I went, whether it was in the US or, it, well, obviously coming here to, to Austria was something that for me, a career path was never really something that I thought about. I mean, I always wanted to have my own business. I, uh, my granny, uh, she has a house in a very transited area and they were building a shopping center in front of her house. And so she has these huge mango trees in the backyard. Wow. What do you think I did? It was fourth grade. I was selling mangoes to all the construction workers across the street. Okay. And um, yeah, I mean, from the start, that was something that was very, very given to us. I think from her, she was very entrepreneurial. Uh, her dad was very entrepreneurial into real estate managed to build an empire and, and she was learning a lot from him. And I think she was trying to pass that on to me. And so she, she, there's a lot that I learned from her from being there in Venezuela, surrounded in that entrepreneurial space. What's her yeah. name? Her name is Beatriz. 
Yeah, she actually was here just in Vienna, 87 years old. She flew wow. all the way here. Uh, she's right now in Spain with my cousins, and then she'll fly back to Venezuela. <laughs> Very cool. And um, you, you, yeah. you, you said when you meet Venezuelans abroad that they have uh, one thing in common that you see a lot, and that's the entrepreneurial mindset and that drive to to uh, go into business. Can you think of any? large figures in Venezuela that had success in the business that the young kids looked up to, or was it that your parents uh, ran businesses that you looked towards that? Cause you said it's very common. What was it that instilled that entrepreneurship in you and others that you meet abroad? Well, my, my father is an architect, but he was a freelancer. So he was a, a contractor. And so he was always on its own and we have his team and, and built up uh, for clients, apartments, houses, whatever it was uh, at the time. But I, I think that in the conversations, like people are always trying to find a way to make an extra buck here and there, like find something that you can sell to the people in your network, the people that you know. You always, I don't know if you, is, is that what people say hustling, but you're always trying to find a way to make some extra cash so that you have more in order to have a better social status or quality of life per se mm. and so that for me was something that always drove me the idea of okay what how how can I put together some kind of, of business that I can make some some cash here um, that was something that maybe is coming from this the circles where, that I surround myself with like a lot of my friends their parents were entrepreneurs and spending a lot of times in their houses you'll see the conversations that they have I mean they were obviously more successful that uh, that we were at my household so it was a lot of um very inspiring for me to see them you know tell talk about their businesses the, what they're doing and 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 the way they educate my friends as well on on how they're going to build their own their own businesses and a lot of those friends that had entrepreneurial parents now they have their own their own businesses as well so that that's definitely something that you see and, and if as the more i see venezuelans abroad i mean easily they go into the restaurant industry like food and stuff like that but little and little you start branching out you see a lot of venezuelans in bitcoin you see a lot of venezuelans in tech health tech i mean carolina herrera is a venezuelan fashion designer and 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 yeah i mean anywhere you will find in every industry somehow there is always a Venezuelan <laughs> with some 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 entrepreneurial spirit so one more one more question of Venezuela is if our listeners and I've asked this in previous podcasts wherever to end up in Venezuela for a day where would you recommend they visit oh you gotta go to Los Roques that's uh, the Caribbean side it's just like 30 minutes flight but you will not find anything like it paradise it's yeah, yeah yeah nice nice so after venezuela uh, after high school of venezuela you spent some time in georgia in the states i know you did a bachelor of science in business admin management and operations and yeah. then was it the masters that took you to vienna you did a masters in international development yeah and that was the thing um so i moved to us with my family and uh i i studied business there but there was this thing inside of me that said, you got to go to Europe. You got to go to Europe. I'd never been to Europe before, but it was just this, this thing that said, you have to go there. You're young. Just figure out the world. You know, it's now or never. I saw that if I stay in the U.S., 
yeah, I was going to have my job and, and buy a house and the whole, the whole white picket fence thing. And I felt that it was now or never. So I, I decided not to renew my visa. I sold everything I had. And I started looking into Europe. I, I saw that a, a student visa would be the easiest way to come over. Uh, I mean, I only have a Venezuelan passport. Um, I looked into Vienna, fell in love with it. I said, that's the place to be. I moved here. Don't speak German. I mean, I didn't speak German. Just trying to find my way. And uh, yeah, the University of Vienna, that's where I landed and started building my life here. Actually, the, originally the plan was to be here for four years and then continue to Shanghai. I always saw myself like this yeah. international entrepreneur that will buy bankrupt companies, rebuild them and sell them. And so that was that was the vision back in the day. Yeah. How did it feel to sell everything in America and potentially start over? Well, you did start over again. What was that feeling like? Because a lot of people wouldn't do that, but my dream of it. It's, it's scary as hell. And, um, you know, the thing is that in order, I mean, and this is what I believe, like in order to yeah. go for great, you need to sacrifice good. And life was good, but it wasn't great. And I just felt like it was the only time, the opportunity, opportunity like it was now or never kind of thing. And I just felt that I was going to regret it if I didn't take it. And the challenge, of course, is that sacrificing good for great does not guarantee great. But you need to believe that you're going to put everything you have behind you and you will figure it out. And I tell you, um, yeah, building a business, growing in, in Europe, it doesn't happen as fast as it happens in, in the U.S. You know, the culture there, you have access to credit and all these different opportunities that definitely accelerate uh, your yeah. growth. I mean, the culture is different, it's fast paced. I mean, coming to Austria, it's a regional market. Um, you know, it's a different language, different culture than what I'm used to. And so it took a long time. I tell you, um, at 22, I was earning more than I was earning at 25, at 26, at 27, 28. Uh, I'm about to be 35 now. And so it was really challenging. It was definitely a struggle where did I make the right choice? And you know what? I just make sure that if I'm going to make the sacrifice of starting all over again, I'm going to make sure that it's worth it. Like if I am struggling, it's not because I'm lazy on a couch and, and you know, it didn't work out. It's because I really exhausted every single opportunity. And uh, after seven years of living in the U.S., I went back to visit my family because my family still lives there. And I saw my friends from university. There's, they were still working in the same company I left them. They were still like, they actually followed down that, down that path that I saw myself into. Like they bought the house, maybe had a boat. They're still in the same company, building career within it. And I was like, man, I've been to places like Georgia, Iran, Norway, like over 13 countries delivering conferences, speaking in public. And, and this is what led to live video, but I guess we'll talk about this. But just the experiences and yeah, maybe I'm not earning as much. Maybe I'm just barely making ends meet. But the experiences uh, and the, the life that I gained because of making that choice, I, I would never regret anything uh, that I've done in that case. And so it depends on what you value. It depends on what you're looking for. If, you know, if at the time sacrificing good for great meant making more money, no, stay in US, you know, like figure it out over there and so on. For me, great at the time meant living the world, getting to know myself, experiencing other cultures and getting out there. And I made sure I did it. 
like that that for sure came through you've got my respect man that that is <laughs> uh, really cool um and i would yeah. love this story to uh, be echoed by more people because usually it is the uh striving for more money and more money or more likes and more likes whereas what you've just said there you touch well, i don't think you meant georgia america you probably meant tbilisi georgia i've been there myself amazing country a couple of other places around there and experiencing mm. life living life is just uh while also continuing to build your company of course as well but uh yeah respect you were going to say something yeah and i think one of the biggest drivers is you know i'm, I'm technically uh um an expert entrepreneur kind of thing. Mm. And, and this is one thing that I see is, is the fact that I don't have a network, the fact that I don't have, I didn't have like working access. Like I, I actually, that was one of the things that pushed me to start the business because as a student, I had a student visa. So I figured out that I could start a business. And as long as I pay my taxes and fulfill my, my visa rights, everything was okay. Um, while if I wanted to work in a company, I would need a working permit and it was all this bureaucratic process. So that was like the, the little push that got me um, to start a business here in Austria. And so, I don't know, I think it really depends. I see how hungry some expat entrepreneurs can be compared to locals that have, you know, no problem with working access and access to funds and all this. Like you don't have those limitations that put the fire on your feet. Like I needed yeah. to figure it out. Like, and I think that's one of the most expensive things that we lose when we move somewhere else. It is the power of our network. You know, like having an aunt that has an uncle that has a cousin somewhere that went to school with that can give you access to the, CMO of Coca-Cola in your country, you know, that I had that in Venezuela. I don't have that here. And so I think, I think that those are the little elements that we need to, to keep in mind. Um, for me, it was make the sacrifice be worth it. You know, if, if I'm going to leave everything that I know and, and go for it, then it better be worth it. Like the sacrifice that my family is doing for me to be here, not to be with them. The family that people around me are making in order for me to have these opportunities. Make it be worth it. Like, yeah. Mm. I'm with you on that. Uh, it's interesting because the Irish have a, have a, have a name for uh, go, uh, leaving Ireland and, go, and going abroad. There's lots of Irish in, on the East Coast of America, Australia, Canada. Mm. I, spent a, I spent a year in Australia my, my best friend from the village that I'm in at the moment, actually, he uh, he moved to Australia and he told me to come out. And after university, he didn't do the university. I did. I went out for a year and I was just taken aback by like the fire underneath people's ass that had moved from Ireland to Australia to just work and grind yeah. and work and make it because they went over there with no network to set up the bank account, had to had to work their ass off, but they had the fire underneath their ass, which 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 gave them that drive and motivation to continue to work. And I experienced that when I got, when I got there there myself. My friend was in the mines, so I didn't see him for a while. And I landed with, you know, uh, no job or, or no place to stay other than a hostel for five days. And it was, right, well, now I got to pull my finger out of my ass and, and, actually, and actually do shit properly and walk into stores and ask them and 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 start to build a network and etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. so massive respect for you on that today's conversation is around uh, live events so i've got a couple of questions for you um 
First one is you put up a post on LinkedIn. So I'll start here. You said that virtual events will not be replaced by physical events. They will complement them. I felt that that was the best place to start. If you could explain what you meant by that. Yeah, so, um, well, pandemic kick, virtual events are our present time, but physical events are coming back. And what I see, so I came across live video back in 2016. Um, I, I was uh, moderating uh, conferences, leadership development conferences, and I came across live video. And from that moment, I've been playing with the technology ever since. Fast forward to today, and we do virtual events for companies, experts, you know, coaches that they want to build their authority, grow their influence. And um, what we see is that, yes, virtual events are very scalable, very attractive because you can reach the whole world. Everything is recorded. But at the end of the day, the physical event is it's needed. Uh, and so what we see is that the virtual events are going to be the ones that are building the audience, attracting people to you, connecting with you. Mm-hmm. And then when you're ready, you launch that physical event that then people will go to because they want to meet you. They want to meet the other people that they have met as you have been building that community. So the virtual event is... a. Uh, They're going to be the events between the anchor main event that will be the physical one. They're the ones helping you um, attract a community, engage them, build it up, and then that everybody comes together at the physical event. That's that's where we all have this unique experience that we all go through pretty much. So that's that's the concept. Um, That's that's what we see has happened. and, And that's where we're going. Here's where my head was at when you said it. I'm part of this organization called Sandler Training. And when the world went virtual, I know you were earlier to the game, 2016 rather than 2019, but when the world went virtual, um, Sandler Training have uh, three conferences every year, one for the public and all their franchisees, and then two which are internal only for franchisees. And I've been attending these since 2015. I've been flying out to Baltimore, I'm flying to Orlando, three, four times a year, and they're amazing. And when the world went virtual, the events initially went virtual because they couldn't host people in the conference places. And I attended these events still with the internal ones, three, 400 people on it. And I couldn't put my finger on why the experience wasn't the same. Now, there's a lot that they didn't do right and a lot that they did do right. We'll get into that in a minute. But when they brought back the in-person events, and there's only been one and there's another one in November, um, it hit me that there needs to be a separation for the two of them. You're right. The virtual ones were for to keep the brand alive, to let the clients know they're still existing, to build that community, to grow that community. And then the in-house one was their anchor one. But what the anchor one had that the other two didn't have, and I don't know if you've been able to nail this, is the uh, hallway conversations. I bumped into someone randomly and I had a 10 minute conversation that led to a piece of business or that continued to keep that relationship alive so that when they thought of podcasts, they thought of Rian. And I could not get that hallway conversation in any of the virtual events. And I don't think that can be replaced, which is why you need a combination of two. Yep, yep, exactly. Um, so what the, the most common mistake that we see 
across the board is really trying to replicate a physical event online. You know, there are all these platforms, all these tools, and we use them. And they have like this networking function where you sort of like a chat roulette kind of thing where they just randomly pair you yeah. with somebody uh, within the, the event. That's force. You know, it's, it's like, okay, now we need to talk to each other. You know, if, if, if at an event, you have those conversations, but it's a bit of, you know, it's, it's a bit of the difference between meeting people at a club and meeting people at a house party. You know, the house party, everybody's more relaxed. Everybody's open. Yeah. Everybody's looking forward to meeting somebody. At the club, everybody's posing and like feels forced. And it's like, okay, I got to meet somebody here because I'm paying to be here and so on. You know, it's, it's, it's not the same vibe. It's not the same experience. And so what we encourage is that do the virtual events for staying top of mind. You know, uh, the, the virtual events. So this is, for example, something that, that we see a lot is that a physical event you know, you, you need to attract people. And so what you want to do is that you water down the content to make it interesting for, for different types of people, especially yeah. if it is a local event. I mean, and you depend on the local market, like you want to water down that, that agenda. But in a physical event, the people are coming because they want to answer questions. They, wa they want to overcome an obstacle. And so they're looking for an answer. And so you actually need to make it very targeted, very niche, which then allows you is to do more events on a particular topic more often to stay top of mind, to answer those questions, to position yourself as an expert, as a mentor, grow your influence, grow, grow your authority. And then the physical event, what happens is that that's the place where people connect horizontally. That's a place where those conversations happen. Those, that's a place where, where people get to know each other. They bump into each other down the hallway. That's when they talk to one another. That's, that's sort of the, the house party uh, space. Yeah. So if you're to combine the two, let's call it a hybrid event, what you're saying here is, and you can correct me if, you, if I'm wrong, that if you're to run a hybrid event, you should run two separate events. They might be at the same time, but you should have like one track for the people in person and then another track for the people online, which might be like uh, uh, guest speakers uh, for when the breaks are on for the people online or different content for the people online. If I think of creating any videos that I've done that are film videos, I storyboard it. So with events, is it the same thing where you storyboard the event so that you're bringing your attendees through a specific journey so that they, it, I guess it's, it's better to bring the attendees through a journey for the specific reason they came there rather than um, just to throw things together. Definitely. Uh, so it is estimated, and this is data from, from Lashwing.com from back in 2017. So they noticed that about 70% uh, of the people that watch a live stream from an event, 70% they are, they are of them are more likely to buy tickets to that event next time. Yeah. And so what the live stream does, the, the virtual event does, is that it gives them a taste of what it could be. What we need to avoid here is that, yes, you may have a physical event and then you say now, OK, let's broadcast it for the people that couldn't be here. If you just point cameras at a stage, you're just live streaming that event. This is the equivalent of the, the people online. This is the equivalent of watching, you know, two people have a conversation for the next eight hours. Yeah. You know, Netflix has amazing storytellers, amazing shows. On average, people watch for like an hour and a half. You know, obviously, 
on uh, not talking about marathons and weekends and so on but but on average and so imagine how long can people stay when they're just watching somebody else have a conversation right so what you want to do is is bring the audience in people love love behind the scenes content that's actually 45 percent of the people that watch uh, a live stream they watch it because they want to see behind the scenes content and so what we work with our customers is look yes there are there's key content that is going to be delivered from the stage but what you want to do is create a parallel event for the virtual audience because the virtual audience has different needs different expectations it's a bit of the football game you know you can go to the stadium you get one experience you can watch it at home you get a different experience you can go down the street to the pub you get a whole different experience you can listen to it on the radio so each channel caters to the way that you want to consume the content. And we need to do the same with a virtual event and a, and a, and a physical event. So what is called a hybrid event? We, we believe that there's no hybrid event. You have a physical event and you have a virtual event. And the virtual event can take some of the content that you take, that you produce in the physical event, but not should not be limited to that. You should create dedicated content for the audience online. That means having a dedicated moderator that works and interacts with the online audience. You take in behind the scenes interviews that are like when we work with TEDx Vienna, we're creating content that the physical participants don't even see. It's just all dedicated for the online audience. We, we take the event and we literally create 10 hours of continuous content. So we take the content that is happening from the stage. We create behind the scenes interviews with the speakers, me moderating the whole interaction. We then go around the venue, we film, we, we showcase what it is to be there. It's not a question why they keep sold, selling out their tickets. Because yeah, yeah. everybody gets to experience the whole, the whole event. That's and, a phenomenal and, experience. Yeah, it, it, you have to tailor the experience to the to the content to the context in which it is consumed. Mm. Yeah. There's a couple of mistakes that you've uh, expressed in a YouTube video that people make when it comes to these events. I'm going to touch on three of them. Mm -hmm. The first one is you can't take a physical event and move it to the virtual space. You've just touched on that. The second one is diluting content to attract more participants. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah. And so what I mean is that you, you want to have a, a, a conference, a virtual event about digital marketing. And so now you're going to talk about every single tactic, you know, from all the spectrums that are out there. And that's how you put together this program to attract people locally. In a virtual setting, um, you can't, you can't really just make it that that broad. So you need to look to answer one or two problems that the audience may have. So like you need to narrow down on your avatar and then you need to tailor the content of that of that event to that person. So if you're talking about marketing, now you're not just gonna go from email marketing to ads to, um, I don't know, to... <laughs> Okay, drawn a blank video here. or yeah, um, video or whatever. But yeah. but what you want to do is, for example, if I were to organize a, an event, I'm gonna focus on maybe list building. And so, how can a virtual conference combining video podcast combines a, an event all together to grow your list faster? Yeah? yeah. And so instead of 
covering different topics, what I bring is people who are already using a virtual conference to grow their business and then sharing how, what they have learned from that particular topic. So everything is tied around the same, around the same question. So that's, that's what I mean. So diluting your content is damaging the end result or can yes. damage the end result. Okay. Uh, yeah. thir thir third thing you mentioned in this video was, um, and I love this because I've been an attendee of several events over the last couple of years, virtually, uh, not working with speakers on their content. Um, that's one that frustrates me a lot. Uh, can you yeah. explain why you decided to list that in your video? Yeah, because, you know, in a, in a physical event, uh, you know, you got the laser shows and the dancers on the stage and the huge room. And, you know, it's like, wow, this is amazing. But in a virtual event, the content is what drives the aha moments that the participant goes through. Like what the aha moments are in a physical event, in a virtual event, those aha moments are coming from the content. And it is every time the audience it's able to overcome an obstacle thanks to the content delivered by the speaker, that's an aha moment. Is when the person goes, oh, okay, I, 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 now I can move forward. That's the aha moment that the person has with that event. And so in order to do that, you need to work a lot with the speakers. Challenge is that in the past, at least from, from my experience in general, is that the event organizer, they have full control of the participant experience. And that's what they focus on. That's what they love to see the people go through the space and interact with the stuff that they have planned. And they sort of delegated the content from the stage to the speakers. Yeah, it's like, hey, do you have any anxiety? Like we can talk about certain topics because we know the market, but they don't go beyond that. And so in a virtual event, now suddenly they find themselves in the position that they need to coach the speakers, uh, but they never had a niche focus agenda. They never had that need to identify the fake beliefs that the audience has and then work together with the speakers to create content that will help them overcome that. And so it's, it's completely different. And so um, in, the, in the events that we have put together, what we do is, okay, we start actually from the fake beliefs that the audience has and, and look into, okay, what is it that they're trying to achieve? What is holding them back? And then we build sort of like uh, uh, the, 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 the spine of the program based on that. And then we're looking into speakers that are really pretty much taking that person in a transformational journey. And so each, each speaker is coming in and moving the person forward. And then you, as, as the entrepreneur, the CEO, the founder, you need to become the leader of the tribe. And you're the one who's going to guide them through that transformation and pulling the content from the different speakers. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, mm, no doubt. In that sense. But this is what really makes a virtual event life-changing. Yeah. Before I move on to the next question, I want to mention two things. First off is that uh, your company, Be Seen, uh, has a website. And on that website, there's free uh, training. I will leave yeah. a link to that in the description below. And there's also something else. There is a, uh, a PDF guide that you've created on five most common mistakes that will make your online event fail. So if you're the owner of a business and you're in charge of running the event, if you're or you've got someone head of marketing, head of events, operations, 
uh, and you're planning your 2022 events or you want to wow your clients in 2021, uh, I'll leave links to these below, whether you want to check them out or you can forward them on to someone else who wants to check them out. But the link to the PDF and the website that will get you the live tra the free training, both of them are linked below. Um, I, 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 can, I can hand on heart say that there's several people that I turned to when the world went virtual to kind of see what I could pick from them, what they did well. Uh, and there's very few out there that are good at running live events and that managed to wow their uh, clients or, or prospects or suspects. Uh, Juan, through my research, has been one of those people that I think knows his shit. So you should certainly check out his stuff. Juan, the next thing I wanted to move on to actually, and I only wanted to touch on it for one or two minutes before we move on to the third topic was monetizing events. Because people listening to this will go, how can I make money from my events? So we'll touch on this for two minutes, but uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll tee it up with this. Um, when it came to uh, monetizing events, you've got your, let's say someone's running an event where they've got a in-person event, but they're also live streaming it virtually. Um, there's an organization that I saw once that said, to come to our in-person event for two days is 1,000 euro. Fine, whatever. If you want to watch it online, it's also 1,000 euro. In my head, I was like, how can you charge 1,000 euro for the online when the person going gets so much more? I referenced earlier on the networking, the hallway conversations. That's worth a lot of money. Um, so when it comes to monetizing, do you encourage uh, different plans uh, when it, uh, uh, in person compared to virtually? How do you go about it? Can you kind of give us a high level overview, wet people's appetite so that if they're interested, the more they know the person to talk to? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it. I think it really depends on the brand that you have built regarding the event. Like obviously if it is the first time, it's very different than if you already built a brand uh, doing a physical event and now you want to launch it online, right? I remember back like about three years ago, uh, Slosh, which is based out of Finland, is a, is a conference. I mean, those guys had on their website that they reach a million people with their live stream. I mean, imagine that to pitch to sponsors, right? And so for the rest of us who are not reaching a million people <laughs> with their live stream, right? But that's the thing, that's the scalability. That's, that's the potential. That's why I fell in love with live video because you can really bring your voice to the whole world on real time, which automatically creates scarcity. And then it's so powerful building trust and connection because I have you right now in front of me, you know? But anyway, uh, when it comes to monetization, there are two things that the first thing that we need to look into first are which path do you choose? And one is your participants. So do you want to charge ticket wise and create some kind of content that you sell to them package offer or to sponsors? Right. And so you, you need to see which way do you go when it comes to a virtual event, uh, the challenge that you have when it, when it comes to content is well, first of all, you need to look at the goal that, you, that you're trying to achieve. Like, we have this feeling that we have free content on YouTube all the time. We can watch conference, you know, recordings. And so it's free. Like, why should I pay for yours? You know, you didn't have to spend money on catering for me. You didn't have to spend money, uh, you know, for the welcome bags for me and all these different things. But when it comes to, to, to charging, uh, monetizing your participants, what's your goal are you trying to build an email list then 
you do it for free, you have more people coming in, and then you create an offer that you pitch them within a session, and that's where you monetize them. Yeah, so you need to think about the business model. Because obviously, if you charge them to watch it, you automatically have less people. And if you still want to pitch them an offer later, now you're pitching to less people, right? And so that's that's why you need to identify what's the ultimate goal with the event. Like, are you trying to build a list? Do you want to reach more people? Do you want to sell them something later? Or actually, that's it. Your, your model is the actual event. On the other hand, sponsors. I mean, when it comes to reach, yeah, as I said, like, it depends on, on how, how far you're going to go with this. Like, Facebook doesn't have the same reach anymore. Uh, YouTube you know, it depends on the audience that you have. So you're really going to be limited on those those aspects. Um, nevertheless, there's a lot that you can do in terms of, hi, guys, welcome back. We are here at the Chevrolet studio live from X, you know, at y, X and Y conference. So there is a lot that you can do in that, in that spectrum. Now, keep in mind that uh, if you're going to offer somebody a access, like a sponsorship of the virtual space, it can be that you, in the end, have more people in the virtual space than in the f- physical space, and you know it can create a conflict between your sponsors. One of the problems that we had in the past was that we were coming in and they were trying to sell the live stream to new sponsors, and the old sponsors were like, "Hey, why didn't you offer that to me? Why isn't that in my package?" And so there was there was a conflict there. But because we started on Facebook Live and not these these private platforms. We had to be really creative because otherwise Facebook would penalize you if you're selling ads and stuff, you know, in your in your Facebook live stream. And so the only way was to embed the con- the, the sponsorship within the content of the event, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like we couldn't just simply put a logo of the sponsor uh, in the graphics. We had to come up really creative ways like workshops or, you know, being live and, and wrapping up the setup, you know, with their logos and their branding. And, and that way. So when it comes to, to, to monetization, uh, you need to first identify your goals. Like if you, this is a marketing event and then you're gonna plan, you plan to make money through selling your products to them, that's the best way to go. No stress, take the budget out of marketing, launch the event, get as many people in there as possible and then pitch them your products. Yeah. Well, there's, there's two more things I wanna to touch on before we wrap up here. Um, one of them is moderating, moderating events. Um, yeah. you've, you've touched on a number of tips for people, and I'll leave a link to that video below, but there's a number of the tips you touched on that I liked, and I'd like you to talk on them. And one of them is positioning, so the moderator of the event, positioning themselves as a audience member. Why do you think that the moderator should think of themselves as a member and what happens when they do yeah so this is actually touching on 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 storytelling and i got this from from story brand this is from donald miller out of the us Mm -hmm. and he's talking about the hero's journey but the application of the hero's journey within a business uh sense right and what happens is that many companies are just talking like, hey, we have the best awards. We have won all these things. We can do this the best. We have the best team. We have the best lawyers. What is happening is that all this language is positioning yourself as a hero. And the audience 
is actually not looking for a hero. They're looking for a mentor to guide them through their own journey that helps them overcome the obstacles. And the way you help them is with your products and services. The event works the same way. The virtual audience is looking for answers to an obstacle that they're encountering, to a problem that they're encountering. And so when you position yourself from the perspective of the audience, you become their mentor. And so you're actually guiding them by asking the questions that they want to get out of the speakers so that they get the content that gives them the aha moments that they're looking for. And so if you, if you try to showcase how you're, oh my God, I have achieved all this stuff, I have done all these awards, I'm making X amount of money, you actually, what is going to happen is that you're going to push people away from you. You're going to repel them. Um, because you're positioning yourself as a hero. Nobody's looking for another hero. We want a mentor that guides us. We're looking for a, for a mentor that helps us overcome our obstacles. And so that's why it's so, so important to position yourself in the role of the audience and trying to, you know, when, when you're an audience member, you're asking for questions to, to, that, to the mentor to help you move forward. Yeah. And so this is the mindset that you need to have. Like if you position yourself as the audience, you're going to ask the, 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 the speakers the questions that, um, that will help the audience member answer the obstacle that they have. That's one of eight tips you give in a particular video. One of the other ones is don't be afraid of silence. Um, <laughs> and the, yeah. the, the power of silence. Yeah. Why should people not be afraid of silence as a moderator? Silence is a very powerful tool. And what, what's happening is that we actually need space to breathe the idea in. Um, when we are bombarding people with information back and forth, we need to take a step back and, and let it sink in. So silence not only allows you to showcase that what we said was something important haven't you noticed like if you if you're at a presentation and suddenly they get quiet then suddenly everybody starts asking like what did they say what happened what happened mm -hmm. what did they say like people come back in right and so you can use silence as a tool to bring people back in but at the same time uh, as you prepare and practice your presentation you know when you need to make a pause for people to process the information you just you just deliver to them and so you know, as, as new um, speakers that are getting out there, especially in a virtual context where you're pretty much delivering a monologue to a camera, where it's really hard to get feedback, you feel like you always need to be filling the space, you know, you need to feel it, you need to always be saying something, but it's not true. It's actually really good to use silence mm. for people to process what we're talking about. I like it. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. The, the power of silence, not just to bring an audience back in, but to uh, have the audience that were paying attention think uh, and give them a moment to think is a brilliant uh, technique or tool to use. In terms of uh, the last 18 to 24 months, depending on where you live and the and, and, uh, whole world gone virtual, one of the things that I've... My, I, I sometimes struggle to wrap my head around is the evolution of people's setup when it comes to hosting or running events. It hasn't evolved that much. In fact, I, I speak now as someone who's just using their laptop because I'm on holidays, but normally we'd be in the studio. So uh, hold back your uh, comments if you're watching the video, because I would normally be in a studio, 
but I see people who started in January or, or March of 2020 with a MacBook and potentially some Air, AirPods in what are we in now? August 2021 still use the same equipment and technology to run their events. And I don't know if it's because there's a lot of other people using it and it's easy to get by and they still have clients and money is still coming in. But is there anything that frustrates you about the, the evolution of, or why do you think some people are slow, so slow to improve their, uh, experience because we can see through this 30 40 minute chat that there's multiple advantages to uh, you know segmenting the in-person to virtual events to then um, yeah I guess we've talked around why uh, you should segment them and also the power of running live events so I'm, I'm struggling to phrase this question but is there anything to, about, it's probably a two-part question. One, is there anything that frustrates you about the lack of evolution on a lot of people's tech stack when it comes to running these events? And two is, why do you think some people have been hesitant or slow to evolve? And have you got anything to say to them that might get them over the line? Yeah, so the biggest frustration for us, actually, is that it doesn't matter how much we practice and we prepare and, and we rehearse. I mean, for us, it takes four weeks for a production. And if we're launching a virtual conference, we're talking about three months, right? And we prepare virtual speakers, remote speakers. Like, remember, they are the ones delivering the content. It's key for the success of the event. And we try and we try, and then suddenly we go live and it's like, can you guys see me? Can you see my slides? I'm like, we had a rehearsal. You guys like, why is this happening? And it's really frustrating because at the end of the day, for somebody who doesn't know, that affects our brand. It at the end affects the experience of the participant and therefore us as a production uh, of, of that event, the production yeah. company. So that's super frustrating. Like we have, sometimes we test and we play around like to the point where we see that the most effective thing is just tell them to come one hour ahead. And then while they're before their call, we just coach them so that we get the best out of them. And still sometimes we don't manage to succeed. So it's really hard because in a virtual event, everything depends on them. So that's, that's a big frustration. The other thing is um, the tools are not always the best. Like for example, if you're, we're using Zoom right now, but if you're using Teams, and you only have your laptop and you want to share your slides, Teams goes away and it's really disorienting. There's like, you need to trust that people can still see you or not. Like there's no way for you to know that people can see you. And so if you don't have that experience uh, and if you don't have that self-awareness uh, of what is happening on the other end, you know, it can, it can be really challenging. And I think that that's part of it. Like some people just, just don't get it. Um, they just don't realize how important it is. And, and they, they feel like, hey, I've been having calls on my laptop. Nobody has ever said anything. They can see me. They can hear me. I, I don't see the point of upgrading this setup. But at the same time, I think that some, some people maybe have the setup never used it and and then just to just continue using what they know that works for them i mean I there is a learning curve you're right but i think you touched on something there you 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 
create a light bulb moment for me. So here's where I'll be honest and transparent. About two and a half years ago, I got invited to Finland to give a talk at, at a conference. Um, and my father got invited as well. So we took a flight over together, spent some time in Finland, and then went and spoke at the conference. I was on the stage four hours before my father. And during my talk, I had slides that were going on the massive screen and then I was talking and there was a problem because I was using a keynote on Apple that they couldn't change the slide and I had a limited experience of talking on stage and let's say it was I, I recovered but like it was not the same my father then went on stage and did his talk his slide froze but he did nothing he just continued to talk and he like he didn't rely on anything he had that experience of 15 20 years of giving talks multiple times and he just and, and i sat back and i was like holy shit that happened to me four hours ago and my whole body went red inside my heart was beating faster than ever like the, uh, the half the audience i lost them whereas he was so slick with how he just sort of continued. And he, it was almost as if the audience was like, do, do they know that this, that has he seen the slides or he didn't care. He just switched them off and he continued and he remembered everything. He didn't need any prompts or anything. So I, when you said experience, I think that's key to it because you gave the example of teams that it disappears and you're then just staring at the, the presentation. Yeah. And I see people go live on LinkedIn and the first couple of minutes is, Am I live? Is this working? I don't know. Where can I see? So you're, you're probably yeah. right. Experiences is a massive part in that. Yeah, and definitely uh, with the slides and all that situation, it's it's part of the experience. Um, if you're relying on the slides, it's it then this can happen. Like it's it's a wake up moment, and I didn't do it again, but it happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I. <laughs> I got into the whole public speaking stuff is because 10 years ago, I had to deliver a, a five minute presentation here in Vienna for three days. I was so, so anxious to the point where I had to ask somebody to go with me, like for moral support. <laughs> and it was because I knew she had already delivered the same presentation. And luckily she went with me because I got paralyzed. I was, I, I mean, to this day, the faces of the people looking at me like, oh my God, please don't die in front of us. You know, it's like, poor guy, he's going to pass out, you know? She stepped in, finished the presentation for me. Like, it was like I was in a trance and I woke out of that room and I was like, wow, that was so bad. Like, I never want to go through that experience ever again in my life. And But I figured like, hey, if I want to be an entrepreneur, I need to master my communication skills, all that stuff. And so that's what I did. I pushed myself to master the stage. And that's what got me to then end up hosting conferences. I, I mean, I, I make a living uh, moderating events here, coaching people on storytelling, entrepreneurs. And that's how I came across live video. And that's where Bicin comes in because I was like, okay, we're not limited by the space. There's all this content. Let's bring it to the world. And so... I, when you tell me this stuff, I feel your pain. I have been there. I know it. I see it a lot with the people that I, that I work with. And it's just simply because you relied on the, on the slides. Um, yeah. Like the slide should just be there to support you. And the way it should be, is just simply like an outline, which you should all also just have in a little piece of paper somewhere, just in case an outline, uh, just some keywords so that you know. But in the end, the biggest thing is, 
what is a fake belief they have, where it is that they need to get them in order that they take the action that I want them to have. Like if you start by the idea of what is the action or feeling I want the audience to have the moment I stop talking, and that's your premise, and then you figure out where are they, what's their fake belief, that's where I need to go. It doesn't matter. You make your, your outline, you know where you what you want to talk about. You use storytelling. What are the stories? What is the main message? You're good to go. But it's it's a like technical problems are gonna happen. Yeah. Regardless, regardless. Not, like, it, like there is no way. <laughs> Unfortunately, to this day, there's no way around it. Like we prepare and we try, and there's always just this this one thing that out of the blue just creates a hiccup. Well, let me finish on this final question and, and then I'll, I'll end on where people can find more information is when that moment happened for me in Finland, uh, I, I was at a, a fork road and you could go left or you could go right. Left is I never want to get on stage again because I did not like that experience. And right is, holy crap, I just saw my dad give that talk and I want to be able to do what he did. So I need to go back and make sure that that, same thing doesn't happen to me again. Yeah. When you gave your talk and you said you became paralyzed and your friend came in and saved the day, what made you decide to go back and do another talk? For me, it was that moment I felt as if my entrepreneurial dream just crumbled. Well, like I, I saw it like sort of like Avengers when they're all fading away. It was like, I want to be an entrepreneur and I cannot talk in public. Like it's just like, away i mean at least that was my pers- my perception of what an entrepreneur does you know it's like you need to be able to communicate you need to be able to deliver presentations you need to talk to people and i was like wow and like my whole dream just went in flames and like i'm not i'm not gonna allow this just because yeah. i i can't speak in public and and so you know with time i realized that uh that all you need to do all you, you just need to be a little bit better than the other people all you need to be is like willing to do it and then you will take on the chance because everybody runs away from the stage nobody like so many people just run away and then what happens is that because you're out there and put yourself in front of others opportunities start coming your way and so on and that was actually one of the things that accelerated my networking uh my network building here in austria so many people i come to that they're like oh yeah i know who you are i saw you like you host at this x and y event and so on awesome and so like that was for me like the cherry on the top like i made sure that that was one thing and and hey it, with time i fell in love with it like i it, it, i coach people now like i deliver do it as a companies business. on it so yeah yeah amazing so. amazing well that's that is amazing to hear and uh kudos to you again from from the very beginning from venezuela to america to then deciding to leave that behind to come to europe and Thank build you. a network and have that fun and eat your ass and if I ever find myself, I've been to Vienna twice. If I ever find myself back mm. there, I'll, I'll I'll text you. We can go for a beer or Definitely. a coffee. And likewise, if Definitely. you're over in Ireland, let me know. But uh, for today's episode, and and thanks again for providing so much value around the topic of live and virtual events. But if people want to learn more, there's your website to be seen where there's free training, blogs. There's even the PDF that I referenced, which was five most common five most common mistakes that will make your online event fail. All of them are linked below and any video that I think I referenced one or two videos through it as well, I'll link them below as well so you can get directly to them without having to search the web for them. But uh, Juan, uh, thank you very much for being my guest today. And as usual, I wish you nothing but the best going forward. Thanks for having me. All the best. Beautiful morning, beautiful morning, baby.